Um, let me just open the scene for you. The background behind a lot of, a, a lot of John chapter 10. In the year 169 BC, a ruthless leader named Antiochus Epiphanes sacked Jerusalem in an attempt to Hellenize the world. Did you know that Helen is the Greek word for Greek? If you're going to say Greek in Greek, you'd say Helen. Kind of weird, right? So if he's going to Greekize or Hellenize the world, what he's trying to do is by force try and make every other country look like Greece. So he would come in and sack a, a, a nation or a city, and he would say, okay, your religion's got to go, your language has got to go, and your culture's got to go, and you've got to replace that with Greek language, Greek culture, and the Greek polytheistic religious system, all right? So he comes in Jerusalem and does this, and then he goes and he tries to conquer Egypt. He fails, and he's really ticked off because he doesn't fail a lot. He's kind of full of himself. And so he comes back to Jerusalem mad about losing to Egypt and really mad when he gets back to Jerusalem because he finds that a lot of the Jews are still worshiping Yahweh. They're still doing Jewish things, speaking Hebrew and all of this. So he makes it illegal, basically, to be a Jew. Illegal to circumcise your kid, uh, your, your boys. Uh, illegal to possess a copy of the scriptures. Illegal to observe the Sabbath. Historians, primarily Josephus, but many others, document these horrible conditions. Antiochus and his army killed over 80,000 Jews as a repercussion because he's mad, right? He sends more than that off to slavery. There are horrible stories of people who are caught with the scriptures or not bowing down to, to Antiochus. See, Antiochus said, you've got to worship me, not Yahweh. Now, for most of us, that's really weird, but especially for a Jew absolutely never do it. So mothers who would refuse to do this, you might want to plug your ears if you don't want to hear this, but he would crucify these mothers and tie their children around their necks. I just need to impress upon you how horrible this man was um, to these folks. Now, that's horrible um, and horrific and Probably the most horrible thing that happened to Israel as a nation. Remember, the nation of Israel, the center of their worship and their identity was the temple. Antiochus came into the temple, took all the gold and silver out, and he put up a, a statue of Zeus in the temple. And then he poured swine's blood all over the altar to completely desecrate that temple. For three years, it lay desecrated. Could not be used for Jewish worship. Now... During this period, and I'm simplifying here, but two main groups emerged. One was a group of freedom fighters, like the Rebel Alliance, like when Vader tried to conquer all these places. Come on now. Rebel Alliance stands up. It is a small force of, of, of rebels, and they're led by this Judah Maccabee. All right? So you've got the freedom fighters, but then you have another group. Another group who were the leadership, I'm not saying all the leadership, but a large chunk of leadership, even religious leadership on the Jewish side, sided with Antiochus. In fact, some of the religious leaders, some of the priests, even helped him desecrate the temple. Why did they do this? To preserve their positions of power. They cared more about their comfort and their preserving the, their positions of power than they did about people or their God. Now, these freedom fighters led by Judah Maccabee in the year 164 BC led a small group of resistance into Jerusalem. They retook the temple 
and they cleansed it. They cleaned it up. They brought back the artifacts. They kicked Antiochus' people out. Now, according to tradition, there's a menorah that's always supposed to be lit in the temple. And what happened was, um, Antiochus had defiled all the vats of oil except one. And this is a huge menorah. And the menorah would burn one vat of olive oil a day. Okay? They only had one vat. Got to leave this thing going continually. So what happened is, they start to burn the menorah with the one vat of oil. And then they begin to make new olive oil. The process to make new olive oil takes eight days. But here's the miracle. The menorah burned for eight days on one day's worth of oil. And then, of course, after the end of the eight days, they had the new oil to put in. This miracle is, is designed or is uh, remembered by what we call Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a Hebrew word that means dedication. And so now, uh, every year, the, the Jewish people celebrate the feast of dedication or Hanukkah, where they remember that God did a miraculous thing by keeping this menorah lit and rededicated the temple for worship. All right? Pretty cool. Now, why am I opening a story about John chapter 10 uh, with this Hanukkah stuff and about rebel alliances, invaders, and, and all of this kind of thing? Because... A large part of the background of what Jesus is talking about in John 10 with talks about shepherds and sheep, you will find, and I'll show you, has to do with Hanukkah thinking. Would you stand as I read the gospel? This is John 10, 1 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way. He's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd to the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow. But they will flee from him because they don't know his voice. They don't know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he was saying to them. So he breaks it down like this. So Jesus says to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep I have other sheep which are not of this fold I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. 
I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. You may be seated. A word about sheep and shepherds. Throughout Scripture, and remember Jesus' Scripture is the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is often described as being sheep. Not because they're dumb, just it's just a nice metaphor. And the shepherd is often is described as Yahweh. God is the shepherd of Israel. Now, God also puts different priests and leaders in charge at times, and he calls them shepherds too, like Moses was uh, referred to as a shepherd of the people. Uh, David was a shepherd. Uh, many of the, the priests were referred to as shepherds as well. The job of the shepherd in real life, right, is to care for the flock, to lead them to food and to water, to protect them from enemies. The job of the, of the shepherd as a leader of Israel is kind of the same, to protect the people from military enemies and from heresy or false doctrine. They're supposed to lead the people toward a relationship with God and protect them from idolatry and from uh, unbelief. So naturally now, Jesus comes to the scene. Now, if you've been gone a few weeks, let me just... The last three weeks we've been talking about John chapter 9. Blind man. Born, from, born blind from birth. Jesus comes in and heals this guy. And he ends up believing in Jesus, even though the Pharisees are trying to convince him that Jesus isn't really anyone special. All right? The Pharisees are the shepherds of Israel. So naturally, Jesus comes on the scene. He's doing all these crazy things, teaching and saying that he's the Son of Man and the Son of God and all this stuff. They want to make sure that he's genuine. They're trying to make sure he's not some phony charlatan who's going to lead the people astray. It kind of makes sense. Lots of people were saying the types of things Jesus was saying to a degree. Lots of people were claiming to be Messiah claiming to be somebody sent from God. All right? So the Pharisees were hearing a lot of these different stories. When it broke down to it, though, all the others but Jesus were merely politicians just trying to get a position of power for themselves. Now, what comes to your mind, honestly, when you hear the word politician, and you just say it out loud? When you hear that word, sleazy, I hear. Is that the only one? Dishonest, okay. Self-serving. All right. Um, kissing babies comes to mind. Saying the right things. Um, broken promises. Now I am. Listen to me. I'm not here to bash politicians. I think they're a very important part of our system. But it makes me ask the question: Is there anybody who's 100% genuine? I mean, let me ask you this. I mean, we don't like a lot of times politicians who make promises and then break them. But are you 100% genuine all the time? I'm not all the time. See, politicians are people just like us with flaws. If we put the responsibility of saving the world in the hands of politicians, guess what? We're going to be disappointed every time. I think that John includes this dialogue of Jesus with the Pharisees to make us ask a question. And that question is, who's genuine? Who can I really trust? 
Well, let's find out because that's what John chapter 10 is about. Jesus' words in the first six chapters, or first six verses of 10, are about as unpolitically correct as you can get. A first century reader with some biblical background could hardly help hearing Jesus' words about thieves and robbers breaking in to steal the sheep without thinking of Ezekiel 34. Now listen to this. Remember I told you that uh, the leadership, the Pharisees, were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. Listen. Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you've not strengthened. The diseased, you've not healed. The broken, you've not bound up. The scattered, you've not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity, you've dominated them. And they were scattered like a lack of shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered all over the surface of the earth. And there was no one for, to seek for them, not even one. So Jesus is kind of poking at these guys, bringing up allusions to this prophecy about, about, about false shepherds. He's talking to these Pharisees about this, and it was very uh, poignant, if you will. Jesus is totally confronting them. They are supposed to be bringing Israel in line with God. They're supposed to be leading Israel toward God. But what happens when a man who's born blind encounters someone who opens his eyes, just like the prophecies in Isaiah talk about? What happens to him when he says, Hey, I know who did it. It's Jesus, the Son of Man. They cast him out of the synagogue. They cut him off from even being able to worship. And that's what Jesus is on about. These shepherds of Israel are not genuine. They're out for their own good. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus reminds them that the sheep will only follow the true shepherd's voice. Other voices are strangers' voices. They won't follow them. Now, in light of the story about the blind man right before this, whose voice did he hear? Whose voice did he follow? It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. He doesn't listen to the voices of the Pharisees. They're strangers. They have their own interests in mind. Well, Jesus' words are kind of weird in verses 1 through 6, and the Pharisees don't get them. And so he just says it straight up. Listen, I am the door of the sheep. That's what he says in verse 7. This is another one of Jesus' I am statements in John. We've talked about this in weeks prior, but let me just remind you that uh, there are all kinds of ways in Greek to say, I am Chris, uh, I am a pastor, I am talking right now in a very hoarse voice. Uh, and there's just a very normal way of writing that in Greek. Then there's another way where you switch up the words to say, ego eimi. And when you see that in the, in the Greek text of John, this is a direct way of translating what God says in Exodus when he says, I am who I am. So when Jesus says these specific I am statements like this, he's saying a lot more than I am a door or I am the good shepherd. He's saying, I am associated with Yahweh and I am the door. Now, let's break this down a little bit. First of all, he says it four times in seven short verses. Twice he says, I am the door. Twice he says, I am the good shepherd. 
There's got to be something going on here that's action-packed. Both of these sayings are trying to communicate a similar message. Now, oftentimes in the ancient world, you'd have a shepherd, and he'd lead the sheep out for days out in pasture. And what they would do is they would find a cave and uh, maybe build up rocks if the uh, mouth of the cave was real wide. They'd put briars over the rock wall, and then they would lay in that opening. So the sheep couldn't come in or out unless the shepherd let them in or out. And wolves and predators and thieves would have to get through that shepherd, who were not like these wimpy guys in nativity scenes. I mean, these guys had the, the crook thing, yeah, but they also had clubs. You know, David killed a lion and he fought bears for his sheep. I mean, I mean, David was a stud, but like, that's what shepherds did, right? They had these clubs. They were mean, man. I wouldn't want to mess with them. So this good shepherd metaphor, this being the door of the sheep, means Jesus is likening himself to one who would lay down and be the one you've got to get through if you want to be in the fold of the sheep. Likewise, if you want to hurt the sheep, you're going to have to get through his club too, right? Go Jesus. Now, Jesus is very poignant again. And he says in verse uh, 10, I believe, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, have it abundantly. Now remember, this is a quiz for all of you who have been going through this John series. What are the two ways in Greek you can say life? Come on now, hook me up. Zoe's one. Bios. Bios. Now with this bios life, remember, bios life is like, hey, a flower grows up, springs out of the ground. That's bios life. It's going to wilt. It's going to die. When we're born, we're born with bios life. Like I'm getting older, my throat, I couldn't even talk on Thursday. It's just break, things break down. Things don't work right. But this gospel is about what happens when we are born from above, when Jesus gets hold of our life. And what happens is he breathes this new kind of life, this Zoe life, which is eternal life. But I don't want us to get hung up there. It's not just about what happens when we die. It's something that happens to you now. You become a different kind of person. You begin eternal life now. And the God life starts to come in and change how you think, how you see the world. So that all of a sudden your kids are giving away animals to Africa on Sundays instead of just eating candy downstairs. Or, or you're spending your Sunday morning instead of watching the Seahawks get beat by Minnesota, which isn't a bad thing to miss, but anyway, uh, delivering food to people who need it. Okay, This is what happens when Zoe life starts to break in. Jesus is saying that I, I came that you would have life to the full, eternal life, whole, complete, meaningful, love-filled, fearless, known you are loved and free to love life. Amen? Now Jesus is the door. You can only get this life through Him. Not through counterfeit doors or earthly leaders who promise heaven on earth. There are many who promised great things, right? And I know these are extreme examples. But, you know, like Hitler promised really good life when things were not looking good. Stalin wowed people with his promises. But in the end, it's the people who suffered. It's the people who sacrificed. And the leaders were the ones who had the power and the prestige and the good life. 
until they all got whacked. Who can you trust? Who's genuine? Who has your best interests in mind? Jesus says, I am, again, ego e me, I am the good shepherd. I don't really like that translation. Good in our culture, what is good? Good is like, not bad. Good is, I'm good. This is actually a more powerful word, this kalos word in Greek. It, it, it could mean something like, I am the noble shepherd. But then noble carries with it this air of stuck-upness, right? Like, oh, I'm a noble. So, um, the authentic shepherd, I like that one. The true shepherd. Here's, a, here's one that's true to the Greek. The beautiful shepherd. Like, beautiful character. Yeah, that one's okay. The one I think speaks loudest to maybe our generation, or our culture, if you will. Jesus says, I am the genuine shepherd. The real deal. No strings attached. What you see is what you get. Not putting on a show. Not making promises I can't back. I'm the genuine shepherd. The 4th century preacher, St. John Chrysostom, his name means the golden mouth. He was a great preacher. Love this guy. When he brings us to the Father, he calls himself a door. When he cares for us, he calls himself a shepherd. So we, we see that these two metaphors of being a door and a shepherd really go hand in hand. We come into the fold through the door, and then that door, the good shepherd himself, stands up and cares for us. How do we know what's real? How does he care for us? Jesus makes a point to say that the hired hands, they just bolt when trouble comes. When there's like wolves coming and stuff, they'll just take off because they don't own the sheep. They don't really care. The religious leaders who kicked a man out of the synagogue for believing in Jesus, the genuine shepherd, they're acting like the evil leaders who sided with who? Antiochus. And now you see how this Hanukkah story is coming to bear on this message. The ones who sided with Antiochus betrayed their own people for political gain. They helped desecrate the temple. Only these leaders who Jesus is talking to are actually worse. Because in less than a year's time, in, in the story's timeline, these leaders would be instrumental in seeing that Jesus, the living temple, is crucified. You know, it's one thing to desecrate the physical temple, but when God comes in the flesh and is here to save, and then for your own political gain, you decide to plug your ears to what Jesus is saying and close your eyes to what he's doing and have him killed like a hitman so that you can maintain some semblance of your own position, that's bad. That's not being a good shepherd. Jesus, as the good shepherd, lays his life down for the sheep, for you and me. Who does that? Who does that? In extreme cases, somebody would lay down their life for a person that they cared about. Or, you know, you hear about it in war, the Medal of Honor is often given to somebody who is, risks, risks their life for somebody else or a group of people. I believe that. But nobody can take their life up again. 
Jesus says, I have authority to lay my life down. And I have authority to take it up again. In this world, it seems that no matter which party runs for office or takes control as a dictator, they're oftentimes a member of the elite. Now, I mentioned in Scripture how God is often referred to as the shepherd of Israel. And centuries before Jesus, this metaphor was really cool because shepherds were kind of idealized. Like, it was a great... Um, great lifestyle. Shepherds are good guys. Like Moses was actually like a real shepherd before he became the shepherd leader of Israel. David, remember, as a boy, he's like a really, he's really a shepherd. And then he becomes the greatest king of Israel. But check this out. By the first century when this was written, shepherds were like way down on the totem pole. Riffraff. I mean, they're, they're up there with sailors like me and Gary. Hey, Gary. I'm, you're okay. But, I mean, so they're, they're, they're kind of dirty. So Jesus is using this metaphor. It's kind of risky. So in one way, in saying, hey, I'm the good shepherd, he's associating himself with divinity. But on another hand, like he's not being, picking the best metaphor if he's running for office against these Pharisees. He's saying, I'm, I'm pretty much a dirty shepherd, right? When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's making a statement about his identity. But he's not winning anybody over. Remember uh, the last presidential election? Uh, all the major candidates are pretty from elite places, right? They all have money, stuff like that. And so they're all trying to figure out these ways to relate to the common man or woman. And you remember Joe the plumber, right? This, I think was that from McCain's camp. But then Joe the plumber became this metaphor for any common working class person. And all the sides, all the candidates would refer to Joe the plumber, whether it be real or in jest. But they would all say stuff like, when I'm in office, I'll do such and such. Or so-and-so will do this or that. And Joe the plumbers out there will be the recipients of such blessing because of my policies. Or the hockey moms out there will just, you know, they'll, they'll really be blessed because I'm in office. Joe the plumber was this name that they, they used to describe the everyday Joe so they could relate. Well, in light of this text, Jesus calling himself the good shepherd would be like Joe the plumber running for office. Joe the plumber saying, I'm God, right? Jesus' leadership is trustworthy and genuine, not just because he can relate to everyday people, like make up stories about Joe the plumber, but because as God, he emptied himself and actually became a person of no high standing. So it's not just a matter of, oh, I can relate. It's like, yeah, you can relate because you really are just a guy out of Nazareth, hanging out with normal, everyday folks. His leadership is genuine, not because he has money or power or pedigree, but because he gives his life for us. Jesus says, you know, I've got other sheep too who aren't from this fold. And that reminds us that he came to save not just Israel, but the entire world. Isn't that a good thing? Because I don't see many Jews out there. <laughs> like, uh, it's a good thing for us who are Gentiles, right? That he's including everyone in the world. We need to remember this too as American Christians, that we don't own the gospel. It's actually an Eastern thing. We're pretty lucky that we get to, the, to have it at all. Um, we need to be those who are about sharing. Because remember, Jesus has sheep that aren't in this fold either. 
Now, I love what John does with with Jesus in, in giving his life. He makes it so clear that Jesus isn't a victim of political powers or evil people. He gave his life up. He has the authority to do it and the authority to take it back. Listen to this. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Notice the part about him taking his life up again. This is the Christian gospel. It's, it's realized not through Jesus' death alone. That's why that cross is empty. There's not a person on there. And you've got the grave cloths draped over it. Because there's not a need for him anymore. Because Jesus is alive. And he's reigning. And on Christ the King Sunday of all times, we remember that he's king. Even though it doesn't look like it all the time. And this has, this whole thing, alright, has four implications for you and me. And I'm gathering this largely from Daryl Johnson, a, a professor at Regions and a mentor of mine in all things preaching. So these are basically his points, but check this out. Four main implications. One, intimate relationship. Intimate relationship. Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. Did you know that, as you know, Western Americans, we are greatly influenced by Greek thought. And when I say the word know, probably what pops into most of your minds is empirical knowledge. So when we say know God, it's usually knowing stuff about God, right? But Jesus is speaking from a Hebrew mindset. And for a Hebrew, when you say, I know God, it means I experience Him. I am in relationship with Him. So Jesus, by being this good shepherd, is saying that we can have intimate relationship with God. I know my own, and my own know me. And that might be a lot after, you know, a long week. But would you think about that for a minute? Like, we are relational beings. I think that at our core, we want nothing more than to be really known and to know someone extremely intimately and all the more the God who created us that's awesome number two communication the sheep hear his voice they know his voice and not the strangers voice now it might seem kind of weird like my experience with uh, shepherd type people are like cowboys and they herd cattle and they ride them from behind and they've got dogs nipping at their heels and then what are they doing? They're leading them to slaughter. Sometimes there's dairy cows but I'm thinking those cowboys. Well these shepherds in Palestine they're shepherds of sheep that they would use for wool and so they would have these sheep the entire life of the sheep. Okay so years and years and years they would have names for the sheep they're kind of like, you know, I know they, I said they were tough guys with clubs, but now switch gears. Like, I, I think they pet them and stuff, and they had names for them. They know the sheep. Oh, that's the one with three spots. That's, that's Daisy, and, and that one with the, the streak, or, you know, that, that's Suzanne, or what, I don't know what they would name them. You, you get the jet. I mean, they've got names for the sheep, and the sheep know their voice. Have you ever seen those guys that, um, that heard the goats when you, you know you hire the, the herd of goats to like clean your hillside or something uh, in Marin County California we were living there there was this thing by the seminary where they would 
let these goat herders go and they go, I can't do it. Whatever. They have this whistle and the goats would follow the guy and he'd go, you know, he'd make these noises that I can't even imitate, but they know his voice and they do like, he'd do these little sounds and they would go right and then they would go left and he's not like hitting them or having dogs chase him around, but it's similar to that where the shepherd and the sheep have this intimate thing going on. Did you know that? That Jesus speaks? How does that affect your prayer life? Like, doesn't prayer sometimes get monotonous? We pray these lists, or we all got to pray for grandma again, and she's not feeling so good, and it, it becomes this task of thing to do. But what if you looked at prayer as this intimate relationship, it's born there, and then the other implication is that we have communication with the shepherd, that we get to know his voice. How do you know his voice? Through scripture, through the community. Hey, I think I heard this from the Lord the other day. What do you guys think? You know, if you're all saying, that's whacked, man. Where is that in the Bible? Yeah, it may not be the Lord. We have different ways of hearing, but the, the point is that Jesus speaks with us. There's this communication. This is wonderful news. Born out of him being the good shepherd. Third implication, security. He's got the club, man. Nobody can snatch you out of his hands. The genuine shepherd will lead us to his new kingdom no matter what obstacles we face. Doesn't mean life's going to be easy. Doesn't mean there's not going to be wolves and thieves and robbers. And you you fill in the blanks for what those metaphors might mean. Doesn't mean there's not going to be economic hardship. Disease and sickness and disappointment. Oh, the disappointment. Broken relationships. It doesn't mean we're exempt from those things. But what it does mean is that those things can't shake us. They can't take us out of the Father's hand. And you know who guarantees it? The Good Shepherd. This bad club, man. It's protecting us. That's good news. Finally, fourth thing. He offers us fullness of life. This definitely means eternal life. Zoe life. Hear me on that. Something to look forward to. I was sharing this at small group uh, on Wednesday night. I think it was the last thing I said I was going to say. And I had this friend who was also a professor, and he would lead medical missionary teams down to South America. And he would have these teams of doctors, and some of them were Christians and some of them weren't. Some of them weren't Christians. And so the doctors, they performed the same all throughout their surgeries and their procedures all day. You couldn't tell the difference between Christians and non-Christian doctors. And I said, so what's the difference? You know, it's like, so what, what is the difference? He said, well, the difference was that afterwards, after dinner, the Christian doctors would get around and they would play cards. And they would sing or they would talk and be in good spirits. And a lot of the non-Christian doctors wouldn't be like that. They would be distressed and distraught because they, they couldn't help enough people or because, um, you know, the, the, the situation was just overwhelming. And I said, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Why weren't the Christians more, like, upset about it? I said, don't you get it? They have hope. See, if this is all there is, man, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. But what if what we're supposed to do is just live our little piece of Zoe life? 
and reflect a little piece of what the kingdom might be. You know, we delivered four meals to people today. Four meals. There's probably 4,000 more mouths to feed, at least, right here in the city limits. But four people, four families with multiple kids in each family got to see a slice of the kingdom. And I know some of these situations, alcohol abuse, physical abuse, that for some of these kids today, they got to see, wait a minute, somebody is trustworthy, that there's someone else looking out for me. Maybe they didn't put it all together. But what is the definition of evangelism? The evangelist spreading the good news in the Evangelical Covenant Church? To cooperate with the Holy Spirit and others to help a person take one step closer to Christ. That's what it is. You think we did that today? I think so. I don't know. That's not my job. My job is to be faithful with what I have and with what we have. Fullness of life is about a perspective more than just having good stuff and smooth sailing. Is that somebody really is king and he is the genuine shepherd. And he's taking us to a place, or actually bringing a place, someday when he reappears. Oh, so wonderful. So beautiful. And we get to be part of that. The genuine shepherd not only gave his life for us, but he took it up again. He's king. We can trust him, not just because he says good things, but because he has the power to back it up. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you need a little hope that somebody's actually reigning in this broken world who knows what they're doing and has your best interests in mind. That's what you want. And you're thinking, hey, this genuine shepherd guy sounds pretty good. You just figured it out. That's the gospel. That's what it is. That Jesus came. He died for us. He rose again. He didn't stay dead. He's bringing a new kingdom with him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you that you are the genuine shepherd. Not only that you had mercy, but frankly, we're rebels against you. There's a lot of times we don't even like you. We don't even like your initiatives. We don't like being selfless like you tell us to be. And you still came and you still died for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are selfless. You are genuine and trustworthy. That you don't just talk a good talk, but you back it up. Being raised from the dead. Promising us Zoe eternal life. Lord, for those who are here this evening who want to taste that life who never have, Lord, draw them to yourself. 
May they sense your forgiveness, your mercy and love. Lord, for those who are here who, who have seen you as their shepherd for a long time, but are confronted with a new angle today or a new invigoration, Lord, would you fill us with, with your spirit and help us to be your little shepherds here on earth, caring for the lost and the distraught and the fatherless and the marginalized? You've been good to us led us to good pasture, given us a hope and a dream for the future. Lord, give us boldness and courage to share that with everyone else in a respectful way, in a relevant way, as you lead us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Thank you. Amen. As we trans-